testing.
Welcome back, and uh, before our service begins, I would like to uh, just remind you all of a few things I, I mentioned this morning. Uh, we are shuffling up the Dinner for Eight groups, and if you weren't part of round one and you want to be part of round two, uh, you can sign up tonight in the fellowship hall. Please do that tonight. I think we're going to try and uh, redo the groups this coming week. Um, also, we do need some people to be the point people or point persons for those groups. And so if you did that uh, in round one and you're willing to do it in round two, if you would let us know. If you didn't do it in round one and want to do it in round two, uh, we could use you. And you can sign up for that. There's a separate sheet for that uh, in the fellowship hall tonight. Uh, we are in need of people to bring either cookies or salad to uh, the memorial lunch for Herman Prinz this coming Wednesday. You can sign up in the fellowship hall. Uh, fellowship lunch this coming Sunday, and so uh, no Sunday school classes this coming Sunday. We'll have a lunch together instead. And then uh, junior high, senior high, game night tonight after the service is over, so all of our young people uh, remember that. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we have a moment of silent prayer and ask the Lord to bless this service. Let's bow before him together. Father, thank you for bringing us back here tonight, and we pray that you would be glorified in this service, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 150 is our call to worship tonight. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his acts of power, praise him for his surpassing greatness, praise him with the sounding of the trumpet, praise him with the harp and lyre, praise him with timbrel and dancing, Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Receive now the greeting of our God and King. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are going to confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed. They're familiar to uh, probably most of us because we say these every Sunday night. If not, there's a Forms and Prayers book in front of you, page 148, as we confess what we believe concerning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so let's say these words together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We're going to respond by singing a song called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. We sang this uh, a few weeks ago, and, and a number of you asked me if we could sing it again soon, and so uh, Joanne played it last time, and she's going to play it again tonight. There are four stanzas, a beautiful song, and it's a reminder to us that that what we just confess together is not a mere empty doctrine. What we just confessed about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
is very personal for each one of us, at least it should be. And it's a reminder that the, the, the God who sent his son and our savior is the one who is always with us and he will keep us to the very end. So notice the words as we sing them, beautiful doctrine, beautiful theology, wonderful reminder of who Christ is for us. We'll sing the four stanzas and let's remain standing as we sing. invite you to turn to page 260 in the Forms and Prayers book, page 260. Uh, Most of you know that we are going through the Canons of Dort together. Uh, The Canons of Dort are really a, a beautiful statement on what we know as the doctrines of grace. And tonight we come to Article 6 of the first main point of doctrine. I will read that article and just ask that you follow along. Article 6, page 260, on God's eternal decision. 
It says the fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision. For all his works are known to God from eternity. In accordance with this decision, he graciously softens the hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe. But by his just judgment, he leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. This decision the wicked, impure, and unstable distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. Last week, uh, we looked at Articles 4 and 5. In Articles 4 and 5, there's a, a point in there when they quote from the familiar words of Ephesians 2, where Paul says that we are saved by grace alone, apart from works. Not anything that we do, all of it, all of our salvation is the gift of God. Uh, in, in other words, our faith in Christ isn't the one thing that we do. Our faith is not the one thing that, you know, we get to take credit for. That too, as Paul says, and the canons echo, that too is God's work in giving us the gift of faith to believe in Jesus. But that raises a question. And it's a question that maybe you've asked before. It's a question that many people have asked before. And it's brought up here in Article 6. And that is the question, why does God give some people the gift of faith and not others? Why do some people believe and not others? Why does God graciously give us the ability to believe in Jesus, but other people don't believe in Jesus? Now here's the answer to that question, and it's gonna sound to you maybe like somewhat of a cop-out, but it's true. Why does God give some people the gift of faith and not others? Because God wanted to because God wanted to. He is God and we are not. He gave some the gift of faith and not others because he wanted to. He, he didn't do it because we're better than others. He didn't do it because we're more worthy than others. He, he didn't do it because you're more deserving than those who don't believe. The Bible is clear and our confessions are clear. All of us deserve hell. All of us deserve judgment. And yet in God's good pleasure, he chose to save some in Christ. And at the same time, he, he passed over others. And in time, he will condemn them in their unbelief. All we can do, really, is, is to marvel at God's grace to us. All we can do is, is stand in awe and praise him and worship him for a salvation that we don't deserve. And, and then seek to take the gospel to those who don't know Christ. The doctrine of election should not make us proud. I, I remember, to my own fault, when I first became Reformed many, many years ago, that I like to argue with people about election. This is back in the day when they had on the internet chat rooms. And I would, I would go in there to these chat rooms and, and purposely engage in an argument with people about election. 
I don't think that's honoring to the Lord. I don't think that's the way to approach reform theology. It, it should not make us argumentative. It should not make us proud. It, it should not make us think that we're better than others. It should not make us think that, that we need to go in there and win an argument. It, it should leave us really saying, Lord, why me? Why did you choose me? Why did you choose to save a sinner like me? And, and so my, my continued prayer as we go through the canons together is that it, it would change our hearts and make us love God more. It, it wouldn't make us an argumentative people or a proud people or a, a people who just want to debate theology all the time without really understanding that, that these doctrines are meant to, to impact our lives. They're meant to make us love God and praise him for what he's done for us. We're going to sing a song together now. We've sung this song before. It's number 425 in the hymnal, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. Many of you have heard of the name Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a, a very prolific hymn writer from the um, 18th century. And, and he's a man who clearly understood the doctrines of grace and clearly understood that that God mercifully saves sinners. And he, he wrote this song. It's, in my opinion, one of his most beautiful songs. And there's a line in here that we'll sing in just a moment. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. In other words, while we, while we contemplate the spiritual blessings that are ours and while we one day in eternity celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb together, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why me? Why me? It was God's good pleasure to save me. It was God's good pleasure to save you. And we thank him and we praise him for that. We'll sing the first four stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
We are going to conclude our congregational prayer tonight by praying the Lord's Prayer together, and I will lead us into that, so let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, you chose us to be holy and blameless before you. We were lovingly predestined to become your sons and daughters, and we have now obtained complete redemption through the blood of Christ. His life of perfect obedience to all of your commands earned our righteousness before you, and his sacrifice on the cross purchased uh, the full forgiveness of all of our sins. And now, Lord, there is reserved for us in heaven uh, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. May we never lose our wonder at so great a salvation. And may our lives reflect a desire to honor you, to glorify you, and to live lives worthy of your calling. We pray that for each one of us, Lord, as children and young people and young adults and and adults, we pray that our desire, wherever we are in life, would be to please you and to honor you, to follow you, in gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray tonight for your church throughout the world. We ask that that each local church would be shepherded by godly, faithful elders, elders who who care about your people, who who seek to lovingly minister to those in need. We also pray that, that your people would be cared for and ministered to by godly deacons who faithfully reflect the love and compassion of Christ. And we pray that your church would receive a steady, regular diet of your word, rightly dividing the law and the gospel and preaching Christ as our only hope in life and in death. We lift up the persecuted church to you. Lord, you know the needs of every one of your people who are suffering on account of following Jesus. Give them strength. Give them endurance. May they not grow weary. May they not be discouraged. May they not be afraid but may they remain faithful to Christ and faithful to their gospel witness. We pray tonight for the situation in the Middle East. Lord, our hearts grieve over the violence, the loss of innocent lives. We pray for peace tonight. We pray for an end to the hostilities. We pray that the gospel would be proclaimed in the darkness of that region and that you would bring your people to saving faith in Christ. We pray for our civil leaders. We pray that you would give them courage and conviction to stand for and to do what is right. May they stand up for life. May they stand up for biblical marriage. May the desire to lead and to govern in such a way that that honors your truth. We pray for our missionaries and missions agencies that we support. We ask that you would continue to bless them and use them We pray tonight for Tepeyac Christian School in Costa Rica as we take an offering for them, that you would continue to bless the students and the faculty there, that in all things they would honor you. Help us to understand your word tonight. Help us to live it out. Help us to bring glory to you in this coming week. We thank you that you are our God and that we are your people. And we conclude now by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We now give to Tepeyac Christian School, and that offering will now be taken. Thank you, Joanne. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, we are continuing our series tonight on Bible verses that are commonly, frequently taken out of context. And tonight we come to Romans chapter 13, and I'm going to read verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we are going to look at this whole passage tonight, but to begin, um, sometimes you will hear people say something like this, we should never mix politics and religion. We should never mix politics and religion. Now, I'm not exactly sure where that came from, but it didn't come from Paul. Uh, here in Romans 13, Paul is mixing politics and religion. He, he is telling us what our duty is as Christians within 
the realm of civil government. Now, of course, this passage raises a question, and and the question is, are we always supposed to submit to the civil authorities? Children, should you always obey the government? There are some people who will take this verse and, and they will say, yes. Yes, Christians are always to submit to the government because that's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 13. And they will say, it, it doesn't matter who's ruling over you. It, it doesn't matter how evil they are. It, it doesn't matter what they tell you to do. It could be Nero, it could be Stalin, it could be Hitler, it could be some other tyrannical crazy person. You are called to submit to them. But is that what this verse is teaching? Is Paul telling us that we have to give unconditional submission to our governing authorities? Well, we're going to look at this tonight, and and we're going to look at this verse not only in the context of Romans 13, we're going to look at this verse in the context of all of Scripture so that we can understand prayerfully by God's will that we would understand what God calls us to do in relation to those in authority over us. And so we're going to look at this tonight. I want to look at it in three parts. First of all, there is the command. That's in verse 1. Then there is the clarification And then there are the consequences, the command, the clarification, and the consequences. Now, now before we get into the passage, it's important that we remember to whom Paul is originally writing this. Certainly, this is God's word to us. This is God's word down through the ages to, to all generations of God's people. And so, adults... This was God's word to your believing parents. This was God's word to your believing grandparents. This is God's word all down through the ages. 2 Timothy 3 tells us all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is profitable for us. It's beneficial. It's helpful for us. Regardless of when and where we live, doesn't matter the time, doesn't matter the place, God's word is profitable. But there was an original audience that Paul was addressing. Specifically, he's he's writing this to Christians in Rome. Rome is where Caesar was located. And who was Caesar at this time? None other than a madman by the name of Nero. And so this is a a very politically corrupt period. I'm not going to give you details about Nero. You've heard me give them to you before. But this is a very politically corrupt period And it's not like the Christians living in Rome had any hope of getting Nero out of office and getting their guy into office. How are these Christians living under this crazy man supposed to live and and respond to his wicked rule? Paul puts it very simply, very plainly in verse 1. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the main idea, this is the main point of this passage. Respect those, submit to those, honor those, obey those who are in authority over you. This is God's design for how a society is to function. Now now what specifically does it mean to be subject to governing authorities? 
Interestingly, the, the Greek word that's translated be subject is a military term. And, and basically it means to, to line up under. It, it, it carries the idea of, of willingly placing ourselves under the authority of those God has placed over us. Now, now it shouldn't surprise you that, that God tells you this. When you read your Bible, you, you see over and over, especially in the New Testament, submission is to characterize the Christian life, isn't it? For example, let me give you a few passages. Children are called to submit to their parents. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. We are called to submit to one another. Ephesians 5, verse 21, Paul says we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We are called to submit to, to God's appointed leaders in the church. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We are called to submit to God. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God. Christ calls us to submit to him. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Submission is one of the characteristics of the Christian life. And it's part of our obedience to the fifth commandment. Children, you all, you all know the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and your mother. The Heidelberg Catechism actually asks the question, what does that mean? What, what is God's will for you? What is God's will for all of us in the fifth commandment? And here's the answer, that I show honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and all those in authority over me that I submit myself with proper obedience to all their good teaching and discipline, and also that I be patient with their failings, for by their hand God wills to rule us. You see, the point is that the fifth commandment is more than just obeying mom and dad. The fifth commandment is telling us that we are called to, to obey all those in authority over us. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised when the, when the Bible comes along and tells us that we are to submit to those who rule over us in the civil realm because we are called in many areas of life to submit to those in authority over us. This, this is echoed in other places in the Bible. Titus 3 verse 1, Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. It doesn't matter our age. It, it, it doesn't matter how long we've been in the church. We are called to be characterized by an attitude of submission to mom and dad, to civil authorities, church leaders, to God himself. But, but here's where we need to be careful. We, we have to be careful that we don't take this verse in Romans, we take other verses that call us to be submissive or subject to the governing authorities, and say, no matter what, we must always obey the government. 
See, the Bible tells us that there will come a time in our lives when we have to make a choice. We have to make a decision. And the choice is, will we obey God or will we obey men? This requires a lot of wisdom, of course. But but we see these kinds of situations in the Bible. And I want to show a few of them too. If you take your Bible and go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. When it comes to our relationship to the government, we, we want to have a balanced biblical view. And, and, and these passages that I'm going to kind of walk us through help us to, to have, hopefully, prayerfully, that, that balanced perspective. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, children, you know, you know the story probably. You know the background. Um, God's people are slaves in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. And, and there's a new king. There's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. And, and this new king of Egypt, he, he looks at, at the people of Israel and he doesn't like what he sees. What, what he sees is that the people of Israel are growing. They're becoming more numerous. In other words, they're having more children. And, and this new king goes, I don't like this at all. If, if Israel keeps growing, if they keep having children, they're going to outnumber us and, and they're going to try to overcome us. And, and at first, he, he decides just to make their work harder, make their lives more miserable. I'll break their backs even more than before. But he does that, and Israel just keeps getting bigger. They just keep having more kids. We're, we're told here that the, the harder the Egyptians work the Israelites, the, the more children Israelites have. And so the king comes up with, a, with another plan. Look at verse 15 of Exodus 1. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now what are these Hebrew women going to do? Big decision, right? God, God says you shall not murder God also says you are to submit to those in authority over you. Based on what the Bible says about submitting to the government, should, should Shifra and Puah just say, well, you know, God calls us to submit. I guess that means we kill the Jewish baby boys. Well, that's not what they do. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God. Let's stop right there. That's one of our problems, isn't it? One of our problems is that we fear men more than we fear God. Parents, it's important for you when raising your children to to remind your children that it is most important that we fear God. We care most what he thinks, not what man thinks. And so we're told here in verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. And do you remember God blessed those women for that? I mentioned to you this morning that sometimes obeying God is hard. It's difficult. But it's always worth it. And in this case, God God blesses these women. He, He blesses them for obeying God rather than men. If you look at verse 20, it says God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Let's look at another passage. Go to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. 
This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Children, you know this story. We're going to get to it eventually in our Sunday morning series. Uh, but here in Daniel 3, um, Nebuchadnezzar builds this big, tall statue. Really, really, really tall. Remember I told you this morning, top of that steeple is 45 feet. Nebuchadnezzar builds a, a 90-foot-high golden statue. So twice the height of that. Big, big, tall statue. And, and he gives this order. This statue is made out of gold. He gives the order that, that whenever, the, whenever the band plays, you all need to fall on your knees and worship the statue. And if you don't do that, there are going to be consequences. If you don't do that, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, once again, you have a choice to make, don't you? What will you do? Obviously, the Bible says that you're not to worship idols. The, the statue that, that Nebuchadnezzar has built is an idol, but at the same time, the Bible says that you're to obey the government. What do you do? What does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? You all know what they do. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three men are just like Shifra and Puah. These three men say, no, we must obey God, not you. And you all know at the end, God saved them. He rescued them. He preserved them out of the fiery furnace. Now, I can't tell you that that will always be the case. I can't tell you that, that every time you obey God rather than men, you won't suffer some kind of earthly consequences. We have brothers and sisters in other places in this world who because of their unwillingness to deny Christ have lost a lot. And so we can't say that, that every time we stand up for righteousness and every time we do what is right and every time we obey God, there will be no earthly consequences. There are many examples in church history of people who obeyed God rather than men and got, well, they got killed for it. But it's always best to obey God. One more example. This one's in the New Testament. Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have just healed a man who had been lame. They're preaching the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who was risen from the dead. And as we see throughout the New Testament, the Jewish religious leaders don't like this. Um, they haul, they haul Peter and John in before them and look at verse 18 of Acts 4. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Just like the Hebrew midwives, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Paul and John have a choice to make. Obey God and keep preaching the gospel or obey the authorities and have an easier life, maybe. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Something similar happens in chapter 5, and, and they say essentially the same thing. They say, we must obey God, 
rather than men. Here's the point. When the government commands us to murder, when the government commands us to worship idols, when the government commands us to stop preaching, we don't obey them. We obey God. In other words, there is a time for what we would term civil disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. Now again, that requires wisdom. And we have to be willing to suffer the consequences for it. If the government says, stop preaching or we're going to throw you in jail, I have to be willing to be thrown in jail for the sake of the gospel. But there comes a time when, when Christians, when we must stand up and we say we must obey God. Romans 13 verse 1 is not this blanket statement that, that we must, no matter what, always obey the authorities. But the posture of the Christian, as long as the government isn't calling us to do that which is sinful, as long as the government isn't calling us to disobey God's moral law, the posture of the Christian toward authority should be one of submission because that's what God calls us to. Now we see some clarification here. Paul goes on now and he, he clarifies a couple of things. First of all, he clarifies the role of the government and, and then he clarifies how we are to view the government. Notice the middle of verse one. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, children, there are certain people who have authority over you, right? Uh, your parents, your teachers at school, the elders at church, the government. But there is only one ultimate authority. There is only one who answers to no one. And that is God. God has the ultimate authority. That is why we are to fear him above anyone else. And Paul says that he has instituted, in other words, he has ordained or appointed those people who have authority over us. Now, now listen, from a human perspective, we know that, that leaders and, and authorities are put into their offices by, by certain human means, right? Right? For example, the elders of our church are, are voted into their office by the congregation. The president of the United States gets voted into office. Children, your teachers at school get hired by the school board. So, so God uses these means to accomplish his purposes. But ultimately... We have to remember that it is God who is the one who has put these people into their positions of authority. Daniel chapter 2 verse 20, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. It's critical that we all remember this. It, it, it is God who removes kings. And, and presidents and rulers. And it is God who places those people in their positions of power. We should remember this about the Joe Bidens of the world. The Gavin Newsoms of the world. We may wish we had a different president. 
we may wish we had a different governor. And certainly we should, we should pray for and we should work for godly civil leaders. We, we need more Christians involved in the political realm. And, and we should, as Christians, as churches, we should stand up and call out sin, call out wickedness, call out godlessness in the, law, in the, in the laws of our nations. But brothers and sisters, this is who God has given us at this moment. There's no politician, no one, who is in any position of authority who is not there or who is there because God didn't put them there. Every leader is there because God has ultimately, sovereignly placed them in that position. And Paul says to resist authorities, except for those cases where the, where the, the authorities call us to disobey God, to resist the authorities, Paul says in verse 2, that is to resist what God has appointed. That's just what the Bible says. We, we live in a culture that is very anti-authoritarian. It, it's the spirit of, you're not the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I just, I want to ask all of us tonight, what does it say about our Christian faith when the world doesn't see anything different in us? What does it say about us when we have the same bad attitude and make the same derogatory comments about authorities that unbelievers make. That ought not to be so. So Paul helpfully clarifies for us the why of our submission. We we are to be characterized by a submissive spirit to those in authority over us because God has placed them there. And, And we want to honor God. We want to submit to God. Now, this doesn't mean there's never a time for disobedience. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to get these people out of office. But it does mean that, that we, are to be, we are to be different than the world around us. Paul also tells us the purpose of our civil authorities. He says in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Verse 4, he is God's servant for your good. God, God has given us civil government for our good. It's a good thing that we have government. Now, there's a lot of wickedness, but without government, it would be be anarchy. God has given us the civil government so that we would be protected, so that there would be order, so that evildoers would be punished. Unfortunately, our government often doesn't do a very good job of that. But that's exactly what what the Belgian Confession of Faith says in Article 36. This is what we confess. It says, we believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings and princes and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policy so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and protect the good. 
And, and so I say to us tonight, we, we should be praying for and, and, and working for civil leaders and, and laws that will protect the good and punish the evil. As the Belgic also says in that same article, we should, we should pray for leaders and laws that will remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. How often do we pray for that? How often do we pray, God, give us leaders and give us laws that will remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and every obstacle to the practice of divine worship? You know, it's easy to get discouraged when we read the news. It's easy to get discouraged when we see what's going on in our political world today. We, we feel very much like we are in the minority. I was talking to one of you this morning and that's what we were saying. We, we feel very much like we are in the minority. Objective morals are trampled on, they're laughed at, they're mocked. But God is still sovereign, isn't he? God is still sovereign. One author writes this, he says, remember, that the Christians to whom Paul was writing in Romans 13 were a tiny minority. A tiny minority in the most powerful polytheistic empire in the world, in the West, in its time. And that was true. The church was a very, very small minority living in a very godless, pagan, polytheistic culture where they worship many, many gods. And then the author says this. Within 200 years... They had turned the world upside down. And so when we get discouraged, don't forget the power of God. Don't forget the power of the gospel to change hearts, to change lives. One final thing, and that is the consequences. What consequences are there with respect to our response to those in authority over us? First of all, Paul says, the consequences of submission to the government is, is approval. Verse 3 says, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Disobedience is followed with punishment. Verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This, this speaks to us as, as citizens, but this also speaks to our political leaders tonight. I, I wish our governor was here to hear this. In a sense, I, I wish he was here to hear that, that we are called as Christians to, to submit as long as we're not called to, to do something sinful. But at the same time, I wish our governor was here to hear what his calling is. To hear what God says about his job. Our civil leaders are to praise those who obey just laws and they are to punish those who disobey those just laws. Doesn't always happen that way. And for serious offenses, that means capital punishment. Paul talks, you'll notice, about the government using the sword. Children, a sword is not used for a slap on the wrist, is it? sword is an instrument of death. And there comes a time when the Bible says that there is to be capital punishment enacted. And so this is, this is our calling. This is the calling of the citizen. This is the calling of the, the civil leader. 
But, but let me end tonight by, by saying this, and, and this is especially true in, in light of the fact that we just finished the book of Revelation a couple weeks ago. We all know where this world is headed. We all know that there is coming a day when, when Jesus will return and every knee will bow and everyone will acknowledge that he is the king. That's where we're going. And, and we know as well that, that, that this world is, is not ultimately our home. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior. It's easy, easy to get wrapped up in, in things in this life and, and those are and can be important things. Things that Christians should be involved in. I would even suggest that perhaps too long the Christians have abdicated their responsibility. And churches have remained silent when they should have spoken. But, but let's not forget that this world is not our home. The Lord Jesus has won eternity for us. It is a gracious gift received by, by, by faith alone. That's where we're headed. But, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the place in which we live right now. This doesn't mean that we go, well, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and so we're just going to let it go. No point in wasting my time in, in that earthly stuff. I don't think that's what God would have for us. As Christians, we should be involved. Some of us perhaps more than others if we're gifted and called in that area. But we should be involved. We should be informed about the issues. We should know what's going on. We, we should want to see our, our culture line up more and more with God's word. We should want a Christian nation, ultimately. That's what we should desire. We, we should want this for our children and our grandchildren. We should want to see God glorified in this world. We should want to see the gospel make progress all throughout the world. We should long to see the gospel go out without any hindrances and worship of God increase. But brothers and sisters, as, as we do that, don't forget that, that ultimately this world isn't our home. There's something better to come. But while God has us here, we are called to be characterized by a submissive heart towards those in authority over us. But when the choice comes and the decision has to be made, and children, when someone says to you, you must do that which God tells you not to do, you must obey God rather than men. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray that you would help us to, to be those who have a submissive spirit to those in authority over us, but help us as well ultimately to fear you rather than men and help us to desire above all things to obey you. We thank you that this world is not our home. We thank you that one day Jesus will come, take us to our eternity and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King over all. Lord, we pray that you would use us for the benefit of your kingdom now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Number 526 is our song of response, He Leadeth Me. Uh, We can rest assured as Christians that as we live as pilgrims in this world, our God will lead us. He will lead us. It's our calling to follow him. Let's sing the four stanzas and let's stand as we sing. by singing all glory be to Christ just one stanza from that song and before uh, we do that the Lord sends us out with his blessing and so receive the blessing of our God and Savior the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace amen